So today, we're going to talk about the eternity of God. God was and is and will be. And so we'll see you guys next week. Let's get out of here. No. Um, so sometimes we don't think too deeply, uh, kind of why we're talking about theology and why we want to go over some attributes, um, is on our foundational book list, the numbers change. As you didn't know, we had a foundational book list. It's right here. It's like the first thing in the visitor's packet. When visitors come here, we're like, hey, you, you should join our church and read 12 books. Uh, they're like, well, cool. That's what I wanted. And uh, But the current order we had is the third book down is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It is written in the 60s. Um, and so, let me see if I can get, I guess it doesn't matter the exact date, but, but I remember it being written in the, copyright 1961. And so this was written in the 60s, and this is just a short little book about the attributes of God, because uh, I'm actually just going to read part of the prelude um, and kind of explain why we should study more theology, why this is really important. <clears throat> And so this is how he starts. True religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. The messenger of Christ, though he speaks from God, must also, as the Quakers used to say, speak to the condition of his hearers. Otherwise, he will speak a language known only to himself. This message must not be only timeless, but timely. He must speak to his own generation. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and have substituted it for, <clears throat> substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. And he goes on in the preface to describe how low of a view of God we have. And that was back in the 60s. And so uh, 60 years later, 61 years later, uh, the condition isn't getting better in the West. And so... Uh, one of the reasons why we study theology proper and why it's so necessary uh, as a foundation is because gradually and gradually, if we don't look at the attributes of God and study God's character um, <clears throat> and his essence and his divinity and what he is like, then we slowly drift into uh, not just heresy, but uh, uh, losing the the worthiness, the majesty, and the glory of God. And so the second reason why uh, is because it emphasizes when we study the attributes of God, it emphasizes the creator-creature distinction. And that's where we start seeing a blur uh, in, in majesty and in glory and holiness. <clears throat> is the more we study God, the more we see how holy he is. And we haven't talked about the holiness of God yet, but... Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it in, uh, in these 930s I'm doing, 
But the heavenly chorus that sings holy, 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 it doesn't sing loving, 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 or gracious, 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 or wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. They sing holy, 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 meaning he's so far different and distinct than anything else. There's only one creator. And so I'm kind of selecting just a few attributes. We're not going in any particular order. There is a hierarchy of attributes, um, so to speak. Um, but we're not just going in. There's no particular order that I'm going through. I'm kind of skipping around. And so <clears throat> there's kind of a hierarchy of attributes. And so um, like I think A.W. Tozer in this book starts with the Trinity, but I decided not to start with the Trinity. Yeah, he starts with the Trinity in his first or second chapter. I decided not to start with the Trinity uh, just because if you look at God's simplicity, simplicity and his aseity and his, uh, we'll look at his eternality um, and his independence and various things, and then his immutability, and then you get to the Trinity, then you automatically apply those to all three persons of the Trinity. And so sometimes if you start with the Trinity, it's just a way of ordering things. Uh, if you start with the Trinity, sometimes you start to get a tritheistic view where it's three separate gods or a modalistic where, <clears throat> not a modalistic, but uh, uh, one where one person of the Trinity exhibits uh, these attributes you know, differently. But we'll eventually get to the Trinity uh, and we'll find out who's a heretic and who's not. Uh, <laughs> so stay tuned for that one. That would probably take a few weeks. But anyways, and so there's a little bit of a hierarchy, and so God's eternality comes out of his infinity. And so just to very briefly summarize, God is an infinite being. In his character, in his attributes, and in his essence, he is infinite. And that's really hard to understand. Um, and so that's why we talk about God's like, uh, God being spirit. Uh, if God was anything but spirit then he couldn't be infinite. If he was uh, materialistic, in whatever that is, uh, then he could not be infinite. And then something besides God could be greater. And so God is infinite, and his eternality comes out of his infinitude. <clears throat> so we're going to look at Psalm 90. We're going to read just verses 1 and 2. Uh, Lord, you have been, before we do that, uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you graciously to, to study your word, to know you, uh, to grow closer to you so that we would worship you uh, more fully, more clearly, uh, with our deeper minds, deeper hearts. Lord, pour out your spirit on us this morning. Amen. <clears throat> so Psalm 90, we're just going to read the first two verses for now. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so, if you go through some systematic theologies, they'll list like all these proof texts and like a hundred of them. You don't really need a hundred, you just need one. If one Bible verse says that God is eternal, then he's eternal. And the other ones say he's eternal, they all say he's eternal. Uh, 
But God's eternality is something that's just uh, presupposed and, and built into the scriptures. If you don't even presuppose it, then it doesn't make much sense. And so God in his eternity is infinitely different than his creation, uh, who is created and is, and is finite. And so in the text of Psalm 90, he's particularly bringing out God's um, eternality in conjunction or in contrast to our finiteness. And that happens over and over in Scripture. And so one of the ways we understand being eternal is by our finiteness. And so um, we are encapsulated by time, and that's how we live, and that's how we think, and we can't think outside of time because we've never experienced that. At least as far as I know. Has anybody been outside and above time for like just a little bit? Maybe. Uh, never mind. But. Don't have, and so we've never even thought that way. And so we've never experienced that way. So we can't think about that. So how we think about God's eternality is by our finiteness. It's one of those what we call like a negative attribute. Is we can't re- we don't really um, experience that. We don't uh, we don't grasp that. So we can get a better understanding of it by thinking the opposite, right? I was created. I had a beginning. God's not that, right? <clears throat> and so some of the few points that. Um, or quick points, I guess, we should make about uh, God's eternality is that, and so this is a, another hard concept, but God created time. Uh, in fact, in Genesis 1, God gives us the clues that he made time when he made the days. Uh, there were no days before. There was, just, is. Right? And so in the very beginning, in, in God's created order, uh, he re- creates the light and he creates the days, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so before that, God had dwelled outside of time. And so God is not subject to time. Time is subject to God. Second Peter 3.8 says, uh, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And if we jump down and if you keep open to Psalm 90, verse 4, Second uh, Peter is, is quoting out of Psalm 90. <clears throat> for a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it has passed, or as a watch in the night. And so it would have been one thing if Peter and the psalmist would have said that a thousand days uh, or a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And it just goes really slow. Time just moves really slow for the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. Then he does the opposite. Uh, and then one day is like a thousand, thousand years. And so he's not subject to time. It's not just one direction where time is a sequential sequence of moments. God's not subject to that. He's not changed by that, right? It goes both directions. A thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. That's timeless, right? And so time is change. We view time in a succession of moments changing to moments, and so... Uh, we studied God's immutability, and so just conceptually, if you were to think that God was subject to time or that before uh, creation there was still this concept of time, it was just going back in eternity, well, besides that being illogical, um, that would make God subject to time, and he's then mutable because 
the only way we view time is by change. And so uh, time is progressive change, sometimes slow, but always changing, right? Uh, sometimes we... Um, Sometimes we experience time differently in our minds or in our emotions or something where we think time is going really slow because, oh my gosh, Stephen's been up here for 14 minutes and he's still talking. <laughs> oh, when will this sermon be over? Uh, or sometimes we think it goes like really fast, but in reality, time never changed. Time never went faster or slower. It's just how you perceived it. And so... Um, but those are, it's a, pro, it's a progressive change. Sometimes it's slow, uh, sometimes the change is slow, sometimes it seems faster. But since God is immutable, he's not subject to time. And so uh, God is so infinite, so big, that not even time could contain him. An eternal regression of time is not even possible anyways. Um, and, and that can't, time has to have a logical beginning. And so the only uh, conclusion we have is what the Bible puts forth is that God is eternal. And that doesn't mean that just time, a really, really, really long amount of time. Uh, his infinitude is, goes outside of time. And so he is the beginning. He is the end. He's not the beginning and then the end. He is the beginning and the end at the same time. He is the alpha and the omega at the same time. He's the one whom the heavenly beings cry, holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. And so we experience time in those, or we view time in those past, present, future tenses, but God views time in is time. He was and is and is to come. From our view, that's past, present, future, but for God, the past just is, the future just is, the present just is. He intercedes time. And so that's pretty worthy to worship. That's like pretty outside uh, of our normal way of thinking. And so Isaiah 40, 28 uh, talks about God alone is eternal. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so there is only one who is eternal. There has to be one who is eternal. There has to be only one. <clears throat> and it could be no other way. And so, uh, one of the, uh, so as we kind of talked about why we talk about theology is if, uh, if you go out to campus, you go out to Wright State, or you go out evangelizing in any way, um, and you find an atheist, which is easy to come across, and you talk to him or her, you'll probably find out very quickly that their concept of God is not even close to the biblical concept, and that they've uh, diminished the idea of God, and so <clears throat> there's arguments. Well, who created God? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, come back when you have a logical question. Um, no, uh, right? There has to be one who is eternal, and so that's exactly what the Bible puts forth. And so when uh, when we view God's eternality, it's not something just to mark off on or make sure we got the attributes right and uh, we pass the class. And when God uh, sorry, when St. Peter opens the gates to heaven, he says, wait, hold on, take this test real quick. And luckily it's a, it's a multiple choice, so you, can, you got a 25% chance at least if you don't know the answer. And I was like, is God eternal? I'm like, yes. Okay, you can mark that one off. No, that's not why we study it. Isaiah 40 
uh, says this multiple times, have you not known, have you not heard? Like, did you not know this? He's trying to like wake everybody up, you know, by his prophetic speaking. The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the eternal one. He's the one that existed before everything. And that's why he's making his point. He's the one that always was. And so God can't create another God because if God created another God, that that God would not be eternal. That's not God. So when you talk to uh, people and they have a less than biblical view about God, they say, well, you say that God's all-powerful, but could he create another God? Well, the answer is no. God can't do anything uh, that is illogical or outside the laws of logic that he dictated. You would have to define God as different, and then God can't create another God because a God can't be created. There can only be one. And that's what we find in Scripture. And so this is the folly of man's thinking. Um, uh, current atheists have a, uh, and secular humanists would have you believe that out of nothing, everything cr- was created. That there was something eternal, and that was energy that came from somewhere and cr- produced matter. But that's just not the case. Um, and so because of God's simplicity, this means that God is eternal and infinite in his attributes. And so it's not enough just to say that God is eternal and that goes into time or he's outside of time. But because of his simplicity, what we learned is that God is all of his attributes. And so when God is infinite and he's merciful, you just put those together and now he's infinitely merciful. And when God's infinite and wrathful, he is infinite and wrathful. And when he's eternal, that means that his mercy extended before time for all eternity. And so God possesses eternality not as an infinite progression and regression of time, but as a transcendent being who never had a beginning or an end. I'm going to make that point over and over and over to get what is eternal in our minds. And so that means all of his attributes fit together with his eternality. And so... My lovely wife said, I should make slides. So I did that this morning in five minutes. And we have why the eternity, uh, eternality of God matters, or what are we supposed to do with this information now? We're supposed to just worship and uh, mark the test when Peter tries to get us into heaven. No. Okay. Uh, the Lord doesn't do anything that isn't eternal. So because God is eternal, he does everything out of his eternality. So Isaiah 40, uh, back to Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass fades and the flowers wither, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so that means he doesn't, his immutability, he doesn't change. When he declares something, he declared it from all eternity. He declared it before the foundations of the world. He did it, and he's not going to change his mind. His words last forever. His words don't change. He doesn't respond to time, so he's not surprised. He doesn't come across the situation and was like, oh no, I didn't see that one coming. What do I do now? And then do something. Because God lives in all of time, past, present, and future, nothing is surprising to him. So what he says stands. The, the situation with like Phineas when he is like zealous when the people are like 
with God and he like the, this John likes to make know where he like basically runs the spear through the sky in his like foreign life or whatever. Like God basically turns like stops the plague because of that. What's the difference between God like changing his mind about well, God interacts. So, what's the difference between God when we when it says that God repented or changed His mind or is doing something new or different? Yeah, or or probably a better situation would be something like when Jesus is um, when Jesus encounters the centurion and his faith. How would you go about explaining something like that? Uh, when he encounters the centurion with his faith in yeah. regards to. Right. And so God's not surprised. In the incarnation of Christ, we can get into the distinction between his humanity and his deity, but that doesn't uh, negate some of those things. But, and so because he's immutable and he's eternal, he always knew these things. And he, but so God is condescending into time. And so he has to speak on uh, and condescend in humanly ways, or else we just wouldn't get anything. Um, so he has to communicate on our level. And so uh, that's the same kind of question as if God was eternal and had eternal decrees and has all these things, why does he uh, let us continue to sin and then at some point in time give us enough grace to overcome that sin? Kind of the same question. And so uh, that's because the way God views it is different than we view it. I don't mean just theoretical. I mean... There are the ways of God, like when we talked about last week, where uh, God will bring about this, this godly grief that produces repentance. Well, theoretically, he could have, from all eternity, just created every creature and every being as sinless somehow and not had any problems in the world. He just decided not to. He, right. And because his eternal decree was that in his own person, so to show mercy, there has to be something to show mercy to. There's no mercy where uh, you're given your wages for doing good. Mercy is out of, uh, 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 and opposed to justice. And so in his eternal decree, he allowed sin, and allowed things to happen so that he would show his mercy. And he condescended into time to do that for us. So that's why I would say the difference is he's not changing or repenting. He's doing things and going, he always knew these things would happen and is then condescending again to show us a greater deal of mercy or justice. Not necessarily Yeah, in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so when it says the word of the Lord endures forever, there is a difference between God's... Uh, prescriptive decrees uh, and his descriptive decrees. Like Exodus, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. That doesn't mean that everyone is not going to murder. It means that that's the Lord's desire. He desires everyone to not murder. But then uh, people murder, right? And so that's what happens in reality. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, and so out of God's eternality, 
He chose us, predestined us. This means that before time existed, he always knew, planned, predestined, loved, chose everything. And so because nothing that uh, the way God is, God doesn't react or get caught by surprise. <clears throat> and so again, since God is outside and above time, it, it, is, it isn't that he has some abstract notion of the future and he's preparing for it or he's just seen the future. The future is only the future to us. The future is just is to God. He's already experienced, uh, A.W. Tozer says this, this is just something I stole, he's already experienced all of your tomorrows. And so when he decrees something, you can know it's going to happen not because he knows the future, because he experiences the future. And so he's condescending to time now to interact with his creation. Psalm 103.17 says, The steadfast love or the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And so out of his eternality, he didn't decide to become merciful in time when he realized what his creation was doing. He decided mercy from everlasting to everlasting. It's part of who he is from, from forever and ever ago. He already decided it. <clears throat> so again, he doesn't choose mercy in the moment. He's already chosen it, and he is it in all of eternity. The shortest psalm in the whole Bible, Psalm 117, uh, talks about God's eternality. We can read the whole thing. It's only two verses. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Right? Uh, a lot of his, a lot of the shorter psalms are just like, God's eternal, he's great, he's awesome, worship him. And so do it. And so, uh, number two, why God's eternality matters. Um, and why, and how we're all to think about it. And so, in fact, those who are mature think eternally. And so we're called to be imitators of God. There's certain things that we can't imitate, like, I can't ever not be uncreated. I was just already created. It's too late for me. <laughs> Maybe you guys can get there. Uh, probably not. But the mature actually think more on terms of eternality. Let's go to First John. And so, um, I have on good authority, probably not actually, uh, that someone else used this line recently, and I'm not the only one that has said this, but you could write a little thing in your Bible uh, under First John, say, who's your daddy? And because it's, it's all about who your father is, who you imitate. And so in the second chapter of First John, uh, he gives us little clues into what maturity looks like. And so we're just going to look at part of verse 13. Uh, when he says, he says this both times about the fathers. He talks about little children, fathers, and young men. <clears throat> but when he says in this little poem about fathers, the fathers don't change. Uh, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the father. And then, I'm sorry, it does change a little bit. And then in verse 14, uh, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And so part of maturity is thinking more eternally. That just means future-oriented. And so if you're thinking, 
for your maturity right now is you think 10 minutes in advance about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, how you're going to live your life, whether you have to go to work, whether you have to set an alarm clock, uh, whether your phone switches automatically uh, for the daylight savings, uh, what time you have to get up you know, to get to church on time. God wants you to have a little bit bigger perspective and maybe think 15 minutes ahead. That's a little closer to eternity, right? 15 minutes versus 10 minutes. And so he's actually, he, a mature person thinks more how God thinks, which is eternally. And so uh, we see that all over the Proverbs, all over Scripture. Those who are mature are those who plan for their future. Proverbs 24, 27 says that the laborers who are, uh, if you're building a house, you should plan all your materials outside and then bring them inside to work, right? There's a future planning. Uh, the mature or the wise leave an inheritance for the next two generations, Proverbs 13, 22. So God even wants you to think financially for generations to come. Uh, if you don't leave an inheritance to your grandchildren, you're not as mature as God wants you to be. Uh, and so those who gratify the flesh are those who are thinking in the moment. That's a clear mark of who is more mature, thinking more godly. When you gratify the flesh, that is a, I'm going to gratify it now. But those who are future-oriented are able to crucify the desires, the desires of the flesh and live to the Spirit, Galatians 5. Uh, and there's distinct warnings directly in the Ten Commandments that we are to think this way. And so in our Protestant way of thinking, the second commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, or more, more accurately, to a thousand generations. And so a mature man or a mature woman doesn't think of obedience towards the, towards the Lord in just their own sense and how it benefits them, but how it benefits their future generation. God will actually bless a thousand generations into the future how you obey Christ today. And that's a mature way of thinking. So number three, our days are numbered and they're really, really short. God is the only eternal one. We've gone over that. But James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And so part of going with number two is that mature men and women uh, think more eternally is that not just on as God has created time. Um, C.S. Lewis had a little uh, analogy to try to describe God's eternality. If you take a piece of paper like this and you just extend it infinitely to the left, your right, and your left, just goes on forever, and you take a little line with a pencil and just like write it there in the middle, and it's eternally going that way, that's time. He's created that. And time will cease to exist. The earth will cease to exist as we know it. And what he's created isn't going to... Uh, we're not going to live on this earth forever. And so that means our time on that earth is even shorter than that. 
Psalm 39, 4 through 6. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And so immature men, immature women, think about time as we're going to have a lot of it. We're going to, uh, I'll have time to do these things later. I'll have, I can put things off, I can gratify the flesh. Uh, Mature men and women who think eternally understand that their life is very, very short. Back to Psalm 90, the majority of our text today, 9 through 12. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason strength 80. In modern science, 90, maybe 100. Yet their span is but a toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so starting in verse... Uh, in Psalm 90, the point of the psalm is that we are comparing God's eternality with our finiteness. And so our, our time on earth is limited. Time is very limited. And so when we study uh, God's eternality, it's supposed to bring this to mind, which is, leads us to the fourth point, God creates us to live forever. Like, wait a minute, Stephen, you just said we're going to die, and our time is short, but we're going to live forever. Yeah, it's how God designed us. So the reality is that eternal life or eternal death are the inevitable end, either direction, for every human being. And so when we talk about God creates things infinitely, or God creates things eternally, uh, mainly we're looking at us, us, our human beings. Daniel 12.2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So uh, in A.W. Tozer, he says, We are made for eternity, but we dwell in time. What a tragedy. Isaiah 66, 22-24, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, uh, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And then since you didn't know Isaiah 66, this is the very last line in Isaiah. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. <clears throat> and Jesus quotes from that in Mark 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so when we look at God's eternality, uh, he does not annihilate us. We, when he creates human beings in his image, he creates us in time for eternity. Right? Every human being has that in their heart. <clears throat> and so it urges us to repent and lay hold of the grace of God. And so 
the reason why we study God's eternality and that how he's outside and above time and how he creates things and creates us humans is because when we choose to sin or when we choose to rebel against God, we're choosing temporal things, very short-lived things. And um, heaven and hell are the reality. Uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians that says that uh, the things we see are transient, but those things unseen are eternal. And so uh, constantly throughout Scripture, there's this narrative of heaven invading earth that in some sense, heaven is the reality. And heaven is coming down to earth because that's what's really real. And so not to say that in a pietistic way, but that's, that, that's really happening. And so the things we experience now are temporal. Those pleasures are temporal. They're very, very short. And um, so the things we do now matter. Because everything we do now matters for eternity. Time will pass away, but what we do will not. So we will either live in the eternal grace of God or the eternal wrath of God forever and ever. It's as simple as that. Uh, there's no other direction. Um, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus was so nice. And so this comes in context of a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And so uh, the reason why this matters is we are all eternal. God put us in time to associate with one another. He didn't, thankfully, he didn't birth me into like the 1600s. I really couldn't do that. I really couldn't do that. I'm very glad I was born in the era I'm born in with all my creaturely comforts. But everyone here is eternal, Everyone here is going to live forever, ever, eternally in the grace and presence of God or eternally in damnation. We should think really deeply on that all the time, not out of fear, but out of the, the text of Scripture. Jesus says, if you're a good tree, you bear good fruit. If you're a bad tree, you bear bad fruit. And it doesn't matter whether you say, uh, Lord, Lord, if you call Jesus Lord, um, that matters, but that's not the only thing that matters. There's many who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and who are not going to enter into his kingdom. So examine your fruit. Today matters because eternity matters. That's how he created us. I don't do, I used to think about this every day. Um, I probably don't, uh, which isn't a good thing, but I often think about my death. I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, hopefully it's going to be in, in multiple years, but the Lord knows. But you're all going to die. We're all going to die. Yeah, go watch What About Bob. <laughs> and that's either, that should either bring you comfort, uh, as Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain, 
or that brings you fear. And if that brings you fear, then that says something about how you know the Lord. And uh, those many who would say, I can't wait to die, <laughs> with the biggest smile on their face. Uh, but the, the point I'm getting at is that be, because God's eternal, he's created us like that. There are those who, who Jesus is going to say, you're going to say, oh, Lord, Lord. But I said, Lord, Lord. Uh, well, you were a bad tree. But there's those who are going to enter in and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And so 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the eternity that we are going to live in if we're in Christ, we bear good fruit, and we lay a hold of his grace and continue and remain faithful. Um, let me just, I'll end with... Uh, one verse from Colossians that I will have to pull up as an encouragement. And so uh, everybody, because I don't just want to throw abstracts out there and say God is eternal and we understand that and we can do that on a test. It comes into that God is condescending into time for us right now to grab a hold of his grace and grow in godliness. And so, uh, Colossians 1, 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so God doesn't give you grace for tomorrow. You don't live in tomorrow. God does. He doesn't give you grace for yesterday. You don't live in yesterday. God does. He gives you grace for the moment, and that's always going to be to produce fruit and remain stable and steadfast. And he's given us these things in the scriptures and in the gospel that we would lay hold of them, grab a hold of his grace, and walk forward in faith. Because he, the hope is that we will not be here forever. Anybody want to be here forever? I always think it's uh, a little funny how uh, modern secular humanists are trying to live forever because there's one thing I don't want to do, and that's live forever here on this earth. <laughs> That's about the one thing I don't want to do. Uh, why you would want to do that is show you how just how deceitful sin is. Um, but the reality is that we will be rewarded and we will walk into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, uh, when we pass from this life. And that will either be into the amount of grace he had appropriated for us and we grabbed or how much we rejected him. And so... Lay hold of the grace of God. He is eternal. Let's pray. Father, cause us to meditate on your word, to know you, to grab and appropriate the grace you've given us today, to see eternal things as eternal 
and to see momentary temporal things as temporal. Father, only you can give us this vision. Only you can give us this wisdom. Only you can supply the strength for us to move forward and remain faithful through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.